Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now this week's message. Good morning, or good afternoon. No, not quite. Well, God gave us a beautiful day to kick off our summer shorts program. It's interesting that our text this morning, I mean, what are the odds of this, actually picture the second coming, the time of his coming as summer, which means there'll be no pants in heaven. <laughs> there'll be no pants in heaven. Okay? Uh, so, uh, shorts are something you're going to have to get used to anyway. Well, we are in the Olivet Discourse. And really, this is one of the most difficult sections in the Synoptic Gospels uh, because it's about the future. It's about the end. It's about eschatology. And while uh, and this section, as a result, is neglected in preaching quite a bit. But there are, if we recall back when we started Mark 13, there are 19 imperatives. There are 25 second-person plural verbs. So that means we are being challenged. We're being challenged. Much more than trying to figure when everything will happen, there are things we must do. And so this text is important from our Lord, and we need to understand it, uh, even though it's a little thorny. Uh, Matthew or Mark chapter 13, what I want to do is give you a review real quick so that we can put the second coming into context. Remember that Jesus has just predicted that the temple will be destroyed. He leaves the temple for the last time. And on his way out, one of the disciples notices how beautiful the temple is. Uh, And Jesus says, well, you see this temple? There won't be one stone standing upon another when I'm finished with it. It's going to be destroyed. Now, this would have blown the minds of the disciples. It would have blown the minds of Israel to hear that. In fact, you know, one of the reasons they're going, to, they're going to condemn him to death in Mark, the only reason they condemn him to death in Mark is because he says that about the temple. Because for Israel, the temple was everything. It's where you met God. If you didn't have the temple, you, you couldn't connect to God in the mind of an Israelite. And so for Jesus to say that, it's just radical to them. But remember that Jesus is about to become the new temple. He's about to become the new plate, meeting place for God. If you want to connect to God, you do it through Jesus Christ. That's what the rest of the gospel will show us. But of course, when Jesus predicts this, The disciples want to know when it's going to happen. And so we have in Mark 13, 4, tell us, they say, when these things will happen. And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? What will be the sign of these things? Now, they understood the, the, the destruction of the temple to mean the end of time. This is really important. What they're really asking is when is the end coming? Because if the temple goes, they're assuming that's the end of history. That's the end of reality. 
So now with that in mind, you've got to remember that there are, they're connecting these two things, the destruction of the temple with the end of time. So here's what happens really sort of in a nutshell, in case you haven't been with us. Jesus starts out by saying, well, let me describe for you a time period before the end. In other words, I'm going to give you some signs. Remember, these are the wars, and then there's rumors of wars, and then there's uh, earthquakes and famines, and there's international unrest, and there's deceivers, false messiahs, and then at the end, he says there's persecutions. All these things describe a time period before the end. They are not the end. Jesus is clear. This is not the end. So the first thing he does to answer their question about the end is tell them about things that are not the end. And we said, why did he do that? Well, at the very end of it, he, he, in, he challenges them with this. Everyone who endures to the end will be saved. It's as if Jesus is saying, I know you want to know when the end is coming. Well, here's what I want you to be prepared. I want you to be prepared. I want you to be there when the end happens. Some people aren't going to make it that long. Some people's faith won't last that long. You need a lasting faith. Because these things characterize reality and time till the end. They are not the end. So wars, earthquakes are not signals of the end. Jesus tells us that. What disciples have to do is endure. So more important than when the end comes... Is will your faith last that long? Will it last through all of this? And we talked about that at length. So it has to endure. Because whoever endures to the end, Jesus said, will be saved. Then, so Jesus says, all right, so now what's he going to do? Well, here's what he does next. Verse 14. Here's the next piece. When you see, now Jesus is pointing to specifics. When you see the abomination of desolation, now this is a term, if you haven't heard it before, you've heard it, but you're not really sure what it means. The, an abomination is just something that's very wicked to God. It's, it's like, like a, on, a, on par beyond sin. It's, a, it's, an, it's, a, it's an abomination beyond comprehension. It's sort of the, uh, the complete, utter uh, devastation morally. I in an idolatrous sense of something sacred. You just can't say it any stronger. So something very evil, wicked, that occurs, an abomination of desolation, that results in God disappearing. That's what desolate means. He's not there anymore. It's so wicked, God can't be there. It's, It's just horrific. And then it says, this abomination of desolation is going to be standing. And this is masculine, and this is neuter. So this is sort of an event, but this is a person. And we know the scriptures teach, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that this is an antichrist. And he stands up in the middle in the, in this, in the temple in Jerusalem. It's going to be destroyed, and this is what it's going to be called. When the temple finally does get destroyed, someone's going to come right into the middle of it and desecrate it with a wicked, idolatrous thing. It's happened before. It happened in Daniel. And it's going to happen it's going to happen again in a few years from Jesus' point, And it's going to happen again in the future. So Jesus is saying, when you see that, somebody where it should not be, let the reader understand, that is, get your mind wrapped around Daniel. 
then those in Judea must flee. So there's going to come a time, if you go back to our picture here, there's a time where all these things characterize the age, and then all of a sudden there is an abomination of desolation. Something is happening to the temple. You say, why does the temple, why does Jesus say the temple is going to get destroyed? Well, because they had wrecked the temple. They had turned it into a den of robbers, remember? It wasn't spiritual anymore. God left there. And, the, and Israel's going to get judged. That's how Israel got judged all through history. So this is one more judgment. You say, well, what did they do this time? Well, they rejected God in the Old Testament. And now in the New Testament, they're rejecting the Messiah. In, in a few days, they'll call for his head. Remember, he came to his own and his own received him not. That's why they're going to be judged here. And the scriptures teach that there will be another judgment. It's a seven-year tribulation period. Daniel 9 says that Israel will be judged ultimately again as a nation in, in this tribulation. And that's, Dan, that's uh, Daniel chapter 9. That's a future judgment. So this abomination of desolation is going to happen in A.D. 70. Remember, Jesus is crucified in A.D. 33. So he is predicting just two days before he dies that all these things are going to happen. And then there's going to be this issue in the temple. And remember, Rome invades Jer Jerusalem. Titus comes in there and, he, and, he, and Rome sets up a banner and they worship it and they desecrate that temple. And that's going to happen in AD 70. And here's where the tricky part comes that you gotta, you got to be thinking about when you're reading the Olivet Discourse. This is referring to two things. The abomination of desolation is referring to A.D. 70, what will happen when Rome invades them. And it's also referring to this seven-year tribulation, something future. What happened in A.D. 70 cannot have fulfilled because Jesus didn't return yet. He didn't return yet. And nor, was, nor is it apropos to say that this was the worst time in all of history since creation, which is what they call it. So what you have is a near, a near and a far event. So imagine that you're looking at a mountain range. When you're reading the Olivet Discourse, imagine that you're kind of driving up on a mountain and you see this beautiful mountain. And as you get closer, you realize there's another mountain there, but you couldn't see it from here. So there's really two things. It looks like one thing when you're reading it, when you're seeing it. But as you get closer, you realize there's another thing. And then you realize that this event's going to happen. This happened in AD 70 and this hasn't even happened yet. And look where we are now. So you realize as you get closer that not only is that mount, is there another mountain, it's actually farther away than the first one. Okay? Uh, if you're looking, you know that little mirror in your car that says, hey, objects may appear a little closer than... Okay, well, in this particular case, when you're reading the Olivet Discourse, you've got you to have that little mirror saying to you, objects uh, uh, may appear farther apart than you think. Because that's the case. All right, so... Uh, what you're dealing with is uh, what in prophetic reality is sometimes you're talking about something near, sometimes you're talking about something far, and you're not always sure which one he's talking about. That's why it gets a little bit complicated. But that's what prophetic typology does. It, it sort of pictures what's going to happen. So A.D. 70, what happens in A.D. 70 becomes a picture of what's going to happen in the future.
That means at some point in Israel's history, let me show you the chart that we made for you. Here is the blue is a picture of this seven-year period. You know this seven-year period exists because of Daniel 9 and because of Revelation. Without Daniel 9, 27... Uh, or 9, 24 to 27, and without revelation, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't understand how this week, this seven-year period is going to come off. But right in the middle of it, there's going to be an abomination of desolation. Second Thessalonians 2 tells us that. That means whatever happened in AD 70, it's like what's going to happen in the future, but it's not the ultimate fulfillment of it. And there's going to be another one. And you say, well, how fast are they going to rebuild the temple? Well, don't imagine that they're going to build the temple the same way they did in Solomon's day. First of all, we can build stuff a whole lot faster now. And number two, it may not even be walls. It may be a tent. It could be anything that just says, hey, this is where we're going to set up shop again and make sacrifices. What you really need here is an altar more than more than a big old temple. So uh, that can happen in this three and a half year period. So that is what we are referring to. In this, Israel is going to get judged yet again in the future. So, meanwhile, now while all this is happening, while all these things are coming, and then this, this, this abomination happens, there's deceivers all around telling you, hey, come out here, we have found the Christ. Look, he's over here. See, because this is what this is building to, the coming of Christ. So everyone is saying, yeah, this is a perfect time to just sort of deceive everyone. And there are false prophets who would just love to, to just scoop believers and, and unbelievers alike and say, hey, come over here. We'll show you where Christ is and you'll get deceived. And so Mark is very quick to say, don't go with them. And you say, well, how will you know? How will you know if they're great at deceiving? Second Thessalonians 2 says the delusion is so strong, people can't help but believe it. And listen, when you're scared and you're desperate and you're running, because notice, remember what it said? When you get to the temple, uh, he says, um, flee. Oh, this is great. All right, so here we have to endure. Here we have to flee. Why are we running? Here, suck it up. You got to last till the end. And here we got to run. And that's just the way discipleship is. Sometimes, sometimes you got to suck it up and you got to endure something. And sometimes you got to run. And what they're running to is to Christ. They're running away from the temple. They're running away from anything they could trust in but Jesus himself. That's what the running is all about. That's why he says, listen, don't stop to get a coat. Don't stop. For any reason, if you're in the field, take off running for the hills. Don't be like Lot's wife who stopped and turned around. Lot's wife becomes a picture of a person who's not quite ready to leave something. And you see, listen, when it comes to Jesus Christ, you can't hold on to anything but him for your salvation. And as a follower of Christ, if he says run, you run. Don't associate yourself with anything in the temple was anything but godly at the time. Trust nothing. Not even your own past. Not even your own good works. Don't trust it. Hightail it away from that to Christ. So you either endure or you flee. That's the, that's the life of a disciple. Now, uh, the reason you won't have to... 
The reason you won't be deceived, because look what Mark says. In those days, after that suffering, literally after that tribulation, now we're going future to that future seven-year tribulation. In those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Here's the reason you don't need to follow anyone prior to his coming about where he's at. You will see him coming. This is a global, universal, open, indisputable return of Christ. You won't have to go looking for him. In fact, Matthew uses two illustrations for you to picture the second coming. Number one, it'd be like lightning occurring from, e- from the east, as far as the east is, from to the west. Imagine lightning just filling the sky. Would you miss that? Probably not. The other image is the image of vultures on a corpse. And the image is basically this. Do you know the way, uh, uh, the same way vultures descend on a corpse on roadkill? It's the same way you'll see Christ coming. As certain as a vulture will find roadkill, you won't miss the second coming. And that's a judgment picture. It's pretty radical picture of the world in, in, as roadkill when Jesus returns. Powerful image. But you won't miss it. Be like lightning and vultures. So, Mark says, you don't need to worry about that. Now, notice what he says. After the tribulation, after the suffering. So, that would be after this moment right here. Let's go back to it. This is the moment. That's the abomination of desolation. That's the center of the thing. After that, the judgment will come. Now, I said this in the first service, and I might as well go ahead and tell you too. So some people believe we'll be raptured here before this seven-year period. Uh, Clearly, this is the second coming. It's always the second coming, and it always comes at the end of this tribulation right here. If you're a pre-trib, you have to postulate a second coming here, and then this must be a third one, but the Scriptures never talk about a third one. You have to postulate that. Okay? Some people believe it's in the middle. You say, why would it be in the middle? Well, because every time the second coming comes, it comes after this middle event. But Revelation stretches this out three and a half years. So, uh, you know, you can take whatever view you want on that. I I struggle with this pre-trib one just because of that. There's only one second coming described in the scriptures. Not two. Only one. So uh, that's the reason I struggle with it a little bit. Uh, There's others, um, but I'm not going to go into it now because there's a danger of potentially getting shot uh, before the service. Um, Anyway, you'll have to decide that for yourself. Just look into it a little bit more. But here's what Mark says about the coming. It's anything but secret. Sun will be dark. In other words, lights out. This is lights out on history. This is the big switch. Lights out on reality. The sun or the astral disintegration stars are literally falling out of the sky like meteors. It's a meteor shower. Uh, and, and look at what it says here. Even the powers in the heavens will be shaken. In other words, the very, the very things that hold reality together, the laws of physics, the laws of the material world will just literally begin to disintegrate and come undone. And you'll almost have this sort of primal chaos, 
almost a pre-creation sort of picture. Remember back in the day when there's, in Genesis, there's darkness and chaos sort of covered the earth? You almost are going back to a scene like that, where the space-time universe is giving way now. That was prior to it. This, is, this will be after it. The space-time universe is giving way to eternal reality. See, behind everything in the material world is a spiritual power that's running everything. And so even though the, and, and so when he shows up, when eternal reality shows up, it no longer has to work. It no longer has to hold things together because he does. Colossians 1 says he holds and sustains it all. So he will come back. Not only does it uh, signal the real power behind everything, it signals the end of world history and reality. And it provides this black, dark backdrop to the beautiful, bright, glorious coming of Jesus Christ. And so it just collapses because it's not necessary anymore. And then, you know, uh, here's what Mark continues to say. Then everyone will see. No one's going to miss this. You don't have to believe anyone who tells you Jesus over here, Jesus over here. Because the Son of Man will be arriving in the clouds with great power and glory. You won't miss that. This is Jesus' favorite phrase of himself, is the Son of Man arriving. And this is Daniel 7. In fact, I want to tell you that all these three verses are all prophetic. Jesus doesn't add anything to them. They all come from the Old Testament. Isaiah 13, Isaiah 34, and Daniel 7 are all pictures right here. And Jesus just puts all that prophetic language together to describe his own coming. So it's a powerful biblical picture of his return. And you ought to read Daniel 7, 13, and 14. You ought to read Isaiah 13 and verse 6, especially, and then maybe a little bit following up to verse 10. It's just terrific. It'll describe this. There's so much more we could say about it, um, but but we'll move on. So he's going to come in the clouds, and and this is interesting because... uh, some say it, sometimes it's in the clouds, sometimes it's on the clouds, sometimes it's with the clouds. In the Old Testament, sometimes the clouds are pictured as sort of God's chariot and he rides them. They're a mode of transport. Other times he's coming in the clouds or on them. There's just different pictures. Uh, I, all I know is there's going to be clouds. And that's what you know too. All right? And then notice great power and glory. This will be completely different. There's a beautiful verse coming up here when Jesus is on trial in chapter 14. We'll get to it in the fall. <laughs> and it's, he's on trial. And it's the first time that, that they, they look at Jesus right in the eye and they say, Are you the one? Are you God's son? And for the first time in the book, For the first time in Mark's gospel, Jesus finally answers the question flat out. I'm going to show you the verse. I am, he says, 1462. Oh, and by the way, said Jesus, you will see, speaking of himself, in the third person, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And hear what you have in this one verse out of Jesus' own mouth is a, is a juxtaposition of his first coming where he's about to die and his second coming together. So that you see a connection that Mark has suggested all the way through for his disciples to remember. And you must not remember this. There will be suffering before there will be glory. 
There will be suffering before their glory. And Jesus pictures that for his disciples. Take up your cross and follow me. I'm going to a cross. You will too. You will too. So keep that in mind. So that's the suffering and the glory come together. And now the picture continues to develop. And Mark adds this. Then he will send, so the eschatological drama continues. He will send his angels. They will gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. That's just the four points of the compass. And here's the reason you don't have to go looking for him, because he's coming for you. He's coming to gather you together, and he will be the central focal point. You won't have to find him. He's going to gather all of his people from the four winds, every point of the compass. And you say, how far? To the ends of the earth. That literally means extremes of the earth and the extremes of heaven. He will gather all of his people. Not one, not one will be overlooked. And you can think about this gathering right here. That's probably the dead. Because we're talking about the second coming. That is the dead and, and the living all together. There will be a resurrection of his people from wherever they are, and there will be the living. Because that's always what happens with the second coming. Whenever you think second coming, you think judgment and you think resurrection. You think judgment and you think resurrection. Because they're always tied to his second coming. So he's going to gather his elect from the four winds. And, of course, this will be a great moment because all of a sudden, all of a sudden, everything you believed, everything you trusted in by faith will be visible to you. What a moment that will be. Now, Jesus is going to give a little parable for us. Learn this. Learn this parable from the fig tree. Whenever its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know, here's our phrase, summer is near. Summer refers to that second coming. It's going to be summer. Listen, we'll have the best summer we've ever had in our lives. That's, that's a summer to wait for, and it's going to be for eternity. Okay, everything you love about summer. But notice what he says. You'll know that summer is near. Not here. Near. So the fig is an illustration. The fig... The fig tree lost all its leaves in the winter. And so it was just this barren tree. But in spring, it started to bud. And when it started to bud and the leaves just began to appear, you knew that summer was around the corner. It wasn't here yet, but it's about to be here. This is important for understanding what is the most difficult verse in all of the discourse, which is coming up. Okay, you got to understand that. It's near, not here. So... Here's what Jesus writes. Now, uh, this is, go look at verse 29. So, also you, when you see, remember that phrase? That was up in verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation. So this is taking you back to verse 14 and the abomination of desolation. And to do that, you have to skip the second, you have to skip the abomination of desolation. Because the fig tree comes here. Let me draw it for you again so it's clear. You've got all these things that are going to happen. Then you have an abomination of desolation. 
Okay? Then you have the coming. Those are clouds. Don't mock them. Those are clouds. Then you have the coming. Then you have the parable of the fig tree. So Jesus is saying, when you see these things, what things? Is he talking about the second coming or is he talking about these things? Well, I'm telling you that I'm arguing you in the text that he's skipping the coming that we just talked about and coming here. When you see this happen, then you know that's near, not here. If you don't skip this, then you have a problem interpreting verse 30, which we're going to look at right now. Uh, So C.S. Lewis, in his little essay called The World's Last Night. Well, let's go ahead and read it first. I tell you the truth. And this is whenever Jesus uses this, you know, he's serious. He's serious all the time. But he's really serious when he said this would be like, the, you know, with your kids, you know, you're saying things, you're saying things. But then you grab their chin. You ever hold your kids like this and say something to them? This would be that. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Well, if all these things includes the second coming and the second coming didn't happen, then Jesus is wrong. And that's what C.S. Lewis believed in his little essay called uh, The World's Last Night, which we'll talk about that. Uh, It's a very short essay, by the way. You can read it in minutes, but it's worth reading. Uh, We'll talk about it a little bit more next week. But he says this is the most embarrassing verse in the Bible because Jesus got it wrong. Because he's interpreting that this generation is the one. This this generation has to refer to the people Jesus is talking to. Anything else is just, you're just, you're playing mind games. All right. So if this, if that generation that Jesus was talking to didn't see the second coming, then Jesus was wrong because he said that generation is going to see all these things. What I'm arguing is these things refer back to the things of, of verse 14. There are the abomination of desolation. That means the people that Jesus was talking to are going to see AD 70. They're going to see Rome come in and destroy this temple. That generation will see that. They're going to live it. And like I said, AD 70 will become a picture of what's going to happen in the future. It'll become a picture of it. So what that generation experienced, a future generation, Israel along with the rest of the world, will experience a much greater one. So there is another generation that will see that tribulation period, the one in the future. But the one Jesus is describing here will see A.D. 70. They'll see it within a decade, a writing of Mark's book. Within a decade, Rome will invade and Titus will go into that temple and there'll be a kind of abomination of desolation that happens there. It will look forward to a future one. Okay? And now notice what Jesus says. Heaven and earth will pass away. Now, he's already shown us that. When he comes, heaven and earth are done. They're never going to look the same again. They're gonna be, it's going to be all just made new by his presence. His presence will change all. He's already shown us heaven and earth will pass away. But he says, my words will never pass away. 
This is a really important discipleship verse. Because you and I are stuck right in between these all the time. We're right here with this butt right here. Big butts. It's just like our whole life is just one big butt. And you know what I mean by that? There are times when you think the way the world works and the way Jesus, what Jesus tells us to do, they're just at odds with each other. And sometimes Jesus just sounds wrong. You feel like C.S. Lewis now. C.S. Lewis wasn't right. He misinterpreted that verse. But Jesus is saying, my words are what hold all things together. Always obey me. Don't listen to the way the world works. Because it's going to disintegrate. Don't hold on to any of its laws. Any, anything you've gleaned in your life about the way the world works. If I tell you something different, you better hold on to that because it's ultimate reality. And one of these days, you'll watch this reality disappear. And I'll be standing here with my words. And if you haven't banked on them, you will likely disintegrate yourself, as we'll see in just a minute. It's the ultimate reality. Uh, My son, Nicky, is uh, learning to fly. Because of the weather, he hasn't been able to finish. He's about to have... Uh, his private license. And um, he's taking classes as well, so they're teaching him things. And one of the things they do that I find really fascinating is they teach him about past crashes. That's always a good thing to learn. Learn from, yes, son, learn all you can. You know? about Well, one of the ones they did was JFK. JFK Jr. And what happened to him. And I want to read to you a few things because I think it really illustrates this, this, this point that I'm trying to make. Uh, so Kennedy Jr., you know, in that little plane, Martha's Vineyard, it goes down. But listen to what this pilot has written about what happened uh, that day. In the last few minutes before Kennedy's little single-engine airplane went into the heavy seas of Martha's, Martha's Vineyard, its radar track showed all the evidence of a mind wobbling in the tortured confusion called vertigo. So he had vertigo, and and he'll explain what he means. This confusion steered Kennedy down a horrifying spiral to his death on that hot, hazy night in July. It's the kind of bafflement and panic that killed Kennedy that arises in a mind as it struggles with contradictory signals in its inner ear and rational faculty. And that's what happens here. Sometimes Jesus contradicts the reality that we know. And sometimes we just go, man, Jesus, that just seems like the hard way around it. Or the... And so we get vertigo, spiritual vertigo. And he says, this is what happens. Reason and emotion are at war. My mind is telling me Jesus must be right, but there's something else inside of me that just thinks the world has this one figured out. And he goes on to write this, and I think it's great. He says... Uh, He describes what's going on, okay, that pilots know, that physics know about gravity and how it works and this kind of thing. And he says, you know, in your inner ear, you have this sense, your inner ear, that the fluid in your inner ear is telling you exactly whether you're balanced or not or whether you're straight up. You know how that is because you can get vertigo. Uh, He says, uh, in in Kennedy's inner ear, this is what what he felt in his ears. You are strapped into a seat that is now as level as if you were sitting squarely at your kitchen table. That's what he felt in his inner ear. 
By contrast, he says, at the same moment that he was feeling perfectly right side up, the aircraft instruments, when correctly interpreted, conveyed this message. Here's what the instruments in his plane were saying. Your wings are tilted steeply to the right of level. The nose of this airplane is pointing way down, and your airspeed is already howling past the red line. And he never felt it. And he never knew it. And that moment, what his inner ear told him and what the instruments told him were completely opposite. But his inner ear felt right. And so he ignored the instruments. I had a pilot come up to me after the service and said, a pilot who can't fly with his instruments isn't going to last 15 seconds. He's got to be able to do it. And I listened to this. It's just fantastic. The airplane's fight path, flight path, creates forces that befuddle one's awareness of Earth's gravity. To judge by the sensations in the seat of your pants, you literally can't tell up from down or left from right. You are as helpless to move out of the airplane's acceleration field as you would be if you were pinned to the side of a spinning circus centrifuge when the floor drops away. And here's the crux of the matter. The pilot's emotions drowned out the flight instrument's story about banking and diving at high speed and screamed out, no way, it can't be. I'm actually flying straight and level. I know it. I feel it's true. That's what's screaming in his ear. And then he writes this about instrument flying. I'm only going to say this. The instruments are your window on reality. And Hillside, you know what gets us off bank all the time is we, we just lose sight of reality sometimes. Sometimes what we think is reality just isn't reality. And he says, I love this line. This is just great spiritual guidance right here. The instruments are your window on reality. Those would be the instruments. And then he says, reality is contextually absolute. Don't forget that phrase. In other words, I don't care if you're in a plane. I don't care if you're on a bike. I don't care if you're in a car. And I don't care if you're walking. Reality is reality. It doesn't matter how you feel. And it doesn't matter where you are. And it doesn't matter what's happening to you. Reality is reality. And you better believe it. And then he writes this. The pilot's task, no less than everyone else's, is to grasp reality, not invent it. You know, the great challenges of your spiritual life is to not invent reality and just trust what Jesus says. And we do this by applying reason. And then he says this. This is the last line I'll read to you, and I love it. It's just fantastic. He says, reality is not negotiable. This is not negotiable. The way Jesus says reality is, it is. Well, let me uh, close by saying, well, what is it about the second coming we ought to grab onto right now before you leave? So let me do that for you real fast. And I will say this. Luke does a f- really wonderful thing for us because Mark is so positive in his uh, second coming approach. Matthew and Luke are less positive than Mark is. They, well, I say they're just talking about the positive side of the return as opposed to the judgment side. But listen to what Luke does, you know, when when the sun isn't shining anymore and the moon loses its light and the stars are falling from heaven. Look what Mark inserts in between those. It's, It's just amazing. Here's what he says. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. So he just lists them. And on earth, you say, well, yeah, what's going on on earth if that's all happening in the sky? What's going on on earth? What's happening to us? The earth, nations will be in distress. They will be anxious. 
In fact, one of those words is hapax. It's never happened. It's never been, never used in the New Testament anywhere else, but to describe what is for these nations, for people, what they're seeing in the skies as if it were beyond all imagination. And they'll notice the sea. Of course, the sea is going to rage with the moon not shine, with, with the moon gone. Devastation on the planet. You can't have all that astrological chaos without seeing earth sort of just go up in chaos. And so the nations are going to be, you say, why are the nations freaking out about what they see? People will be fainting. Now, this is a nice way to say croaking. Okay, because there's going to be such, the emotional trauma will be lethal. It's going to overtake you. It's going to drop you. Why? Fear. From what? The expectation of what is coming on the world. It's like in this moment right here when Christ returns. There will be the sense that everything I've trusted in the material world was wrong. And that means I'm accountable for everything I've ever done. There's a person's eyes I'm going to have to look into and give an account for my life. That's what's so devastating. And they'll faint. Revelation 6 says they'll literally ask for the mountains to fall on them so that God doesn't see them. That's running for cover if I've ever heard of it. You don't want to be seen. Because against the backdrop of this dark scene is the bright light of his coming and his glory. My sons and I were... Uh, the Western Conference Finals, Golden State and OKC, we couldn't watch it at home because we don't TNT. Something's going wrong at our, our house. It's wrong, and then we just can't get it. So we all piled in the car and went to a restaurant. And there was hardly anybody there, local restaurant. Uh, we, we sat in a section. It was uh, a big booth, but there was like six of booths in this one section, and no one else was in that section. The little girl waiting on us uh, all this time. And as the game has got, got toward the end and, and the restaurant was even less people in it. And we're sitting there watching the end of the game. Uh, she comes through with a flashlight, big old yellow light with a trigger on it and all this kind of stuff. And she is shining an, under the booths that are right next to us. Three of them as we're watching. And uh, we just assumed that somebody had called in and said, hey, I must have lost my watch or I must have lost something. Could you go find it for us? Well, she comes through with the flashlight first. We don't know what she's looking for, but we're dying to see because we're nosy. And then uh, a few minutes later, she puts the flashlight down and then she comes back with cleaning materials. Because it's all dark. All, the, the, the booths are dark. The wall's dark. The floor's dark. You can't see in there. So she's coming with the flashlight because it's her time to clean up her section. And she's looking for things you can't see with the naked eye. By the time she was done leaning in, laying over things and spraying and cleaning, she had swept out stuff that piled into the middle of the floor. And we were like, that was under there. I mean, we, it was like, oh, look at all that stuff. You'd have never noticed unless the bright light had shined on it. C.S. Lewis says, when the irresistible light the irresistible light stream is upon us. That light, which is so different from the light of this world, is different than the sun, different than natural light. It's supernatural light. A perfect critique will be penned on each of us. And we shall know beyond a doubt in every fiber of our appalled 
or delighted being. Exactly what we are. And here's the truth of the matter. No one can sustain that light. A bright light in any of our lives would reveal things that were horrifying. Some of them we wouldn't even realize. Some of them we do and we hide. But none of us can make it. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand that bright light? But here's what Jesus says. Here's what the psalmist says. But with you there is forgiveness. That's your only hope. If you're counting on having good deeds and him missing a spot or not seeing something, you're in big trouble. Don't count on that. Don't count on that. Luke, after he talks about men fainting, says to the rest of the crowd who know Jesus, lift up your heads, your redemption draws nigh. Well, some people are going to pass out and some people are going to look up with confidence. What's the difference in how can I be ready? What's the difference in how can I be ready? Well, here's the thing. In just a few verses in Mark 15 and actually in Matthew 2, you know how it describes the crucifixion? The same way it describes the second coming. The sun goes out. There's darkness. Earthquakes. And Jesus cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here's the thing as I wrap this up. Don't miss this. It's the point. Your only hope is that Jesus has already experienced the judgment before he comes in judgment. Do you know what the gospel is? The gospel is that Jesus took your judgment before he comes to judge. So profoundly important. You can't sustain it. The only hope you have of lasting through the second coming is what Jesus did for you in the first coming. I don't have this up there, but I just absolutely have to read it to you. Listen to this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Grace appeared. When did it appear? Obviously, when Jesus came the first time. Listen to what he says. He came the first time and he brought salvation and it trains us to reject godless ways, worldly desires, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age as we wait. What are we waiting for? As we wait for the happy fulfillment of our hope in the glorious appearing That's the second coming The first coming he comes in grace the second one he comes in glory The only way to survive the light of his second glorious coming is the grace of his first coming It's the only way if you're relying on good deeds, good family upbringing, any of that, you'll be devastated, you'll disintegrate, you'll be calling for mountains to cover you up so nobody sees who you truly are. And then in that moment, not only does the material world disintegrate, so does everything you've banked your life on. If it wasn't Jesus Christ solely. If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ and have called upon what he did to save you and that alone... 
then when Jesus Christ comes back, all you have to do is lift your head in confidence. Not because you could surpass or somehow pass the bright light test, because you couldn't. The only reason you can is because when God shines that bright light on you, what he'll see is Jesus Christ on you. He won't see anything you've done. He'll only see what his son has done for you. That's the gospel. And until you put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ and he runs your life, then the second coming is not a great day. It's going to be a very scary day. Would you bow your heads? Father, it's an overwhelming text. It has news about reality for us. And again, the second coming just reminds us that you're in charge of everything. It reminds us that you hold the whole world and universe together. It reminds us that you came the first time to save us. It reminds us that there's absolute hope for the world, that there's an eternal summer coming. And the only way we can enjoy that is through what Jesus Christ did. We can't count on anything else. In fact, you're clear in this text that we're to run from anything that we would find cover in other than you. We're to flee it and run to you. And I pray, God, this morning, at least one person in this room who has trusted in anything other than himself would find himself leaving it all behind and running solely to what Jesus Christ has done for him. And we are grateful for your grace and first appearing. And because of what you've done, we can wait with happy fulfillment, Titus says, at your glorious return. I pray that for everyone in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.